Good morning again and welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, like I said earlier, welcome to all the visitors that are here to celebrate with us uh, this new life that we just had at the child dedication. We're grateful that you're here. Right now as a church, we're in a sermon series in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And so whether you know anything about this book or anything about the Bible at all, there's a couple things that you need to know before we even begin to open this book and look at our passage. So 2 Corinthians comes after uh, Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And so here's what you need to know to help us begin to understand what we're about to read this morning. First thing is that uh, this letter is written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a pastor, a church planter, a guy who was going from city to city in the ancient world, preaching the gospel and starting new churches. And he went, to, uh, one of the cities he went to was the ancient Greco-Roman port city called Corinth. So he went there, preached the gospel, people believed it, they were saved, they were converted, and a new church was started. Second thing you need to know is that this church was a complete mess. They were brand new believers, they were new converts, and a lot of their culture and their previous sin was uh, infiltrating and affecting the church. In fact, uh, uh, the church that Hiawatha started from, they preached on uh, 1 Corinthians maybe two decades ago or 15 years ago. And this, this was their uh, sermon series title. It was 1 Corinthians, Bridezilla, the church in Corinth. So the Bible speaks about the church being the bride of Christ and the church in Corinth was a mess. They were <laughs> still the bride of Christ, but they were a big mess. So if you don't know this reference, there's a TV show about brides that were hard to deal with, like back in the early 2000s or something. But anyway, that's what you need to know. Paul planted this church. He's now gone, and they have serious messes within the church. But we're going to see in today's sermon that even though there was lots of sin, lots of division, lots of hurt uh, between all the different Christians within this city, there's something that can bring unity. Even after years of conflict and disunity and factions, it's the gospel, and the gospel is going to bring unity among these people who uh, have sinned against each other, hurt, hurt each other, slandered each other, etc., and so we're going to be reading uh, 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, verse 23, through chapter 2, verse 11. So you can follow along on the screen behind me, or you can uh, follow along in your own Bibles or phones. Starting in verse 23, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you, or coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm uh, in your faith. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. For you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. All right, we studied this passage with a number of our uh, leaders uh, and leadership teams here this past week, and they're all like, I don't really know what's going on. There's a few verses maybe I understand, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. So let's kind of unpack this. So Paul, he's, he's the church planter. He's the pastor that started this church. And then after six or 12 months, he left to go start new churches. And he's writing back to this church that he's still their, their, their father in the faith, but he's no longer with them. So Corinth was an ancient Greco-Roman port city. Uh, that was full of Greeks and Romans and, and Jewish people. Uh, it was very multicultural and multi-ethnic. And so this, this is kind of what's, uh, I'm going to give you the background that's going to help us better understand our passage here. Lots going on. Hopefully this is helpful. Got a little flow chart here. It helped my mind wrap uh, around what's going on. So hopefully it's kind of helpful to you. So it started with Paul planting a church. So that's a sign from a church that says Corinth. So it started by him planting a church, and then within a year of leaving, he sent his first letter back. So we don't even have this letter, it's just referenced in the Bible. So he sends letter one back to the church in Corinth, because he hears that there is lots of mess there. So Paul's left, and he's like, oh, what's going on? There's lots of sexual immorality going on in the church, and the church is like, hey, grace, we can sin, and who cares? We're all about grace here. So Paul writes letter one back to them and says, no, not okay. Sadly, that first letter didn't do the trick. Things didn't change. So then Paul writes a longer second letter, which is actually called 1 Corinthians, and that is one of the books in the New Testament. So this is a longer letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, speaking to all different kinds of issues. If you've read this book, he's speaking to divisions and disunity and drunkenness and uh, partiality, factions, sexual immorality, lots of stuff. And in this book, he tells the church, to exercise church discipline. Essentially, there's, there's a, at least one guy who's rising up and uh, is slandering Paul and is a false teacher and, and, and uh, leading people away. And so Paul writes back in 1 Corinthians, that second letter there, and he says, this guy, he's bad. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's not telling you the truth. He's making me out to be the enemy. He's very proud. And because he's not listening over and over and over again, he will not repent because of that church, you should kick him out because he needs to see how bad his pain is and how he is hurting people with that. So that happens in 1 Corinthians, but that actually does not solve the problem either. So Timothy, Paul's buddy, his, his ministry partner, uh, travels through Corinth six months after this letter comes out and sees it's still such a mess. So Paul is distraught at this time, and he himself then takes a trip to Corinth to confront them because a bunch of letters is not working. And so he goes to Corinth. He uh, speaks to them harshly in love, but he speaks to them harshly and uh, they don't change. And this is what Paul, in what we just read today's passage, in what he calls the painful visit. He shows up, he speaks truth to them, he confronts uh, um, sinful leaders and sinful practices and false doctrine within the church. But when Paul leaves, he's not even sure that it's going to work. He's not even sure if this church is going to continue. So Paul leaves, and just a few months later, he sends another letter, this letter that was described in today's passage, where he writes with anguish of heart and, and with tears because he's so sad. That's letter number three, which is not in the Bible, but it's referenced. And this letter actually works. It seems to have some 
positive effect, some change, which then leads us to 2 Corinthians, what we're reading right now. So Paul is referencing all these trips, all these letters, and they're seeing some change within the church. So hopefully that helps just a little bit to understand what is going on in our passage here today. So we're going to look at two things that Paul does so we kind of understand the context. Now let's kind of zoom back and say, well, what's true for us? What's, what's, what's important for us to hear today? And we're going to see Paul do and say two things, things that are both good examples for us as Christians and Christian leadership, as well as these are actually not just Paul being a great example, but also pictures or examples of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us. So the first thing we see Paul do to the church in Corinth is he speaks the truth, harsh truth, very pointed truth. He confronts them, but he does so out of love. He does so in the context of love for them. So we are often have a temptation just as humans to do one or the other. It might be different circumstances. We do different things. It might be a personality. But we have the temptation to do just one or the other, to love people really well, and to not really bring up anything that's going to cause uh, conflict or friction. Or we really like to be truth tellers and just don't really care how people receive it. We're tempted to do one or the other. And both leads to unhealth. But the reality is there is truth and we do need to hear it, yet truth can also be used as a weapon. So truth, on, on one end of the unhealthy spectrum, would be truth only. So no love, people just speaking truth to someone else. And we see uh, these type of people often, or that's probably us at times too, what they're trying to do, if they only speak the truth with no love, they're trying to just win an argument. They're trying to look good. They don't care who they hurt, they just want to look right or be right or see or be seen in a certain way. And actually in Paul's other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul brings this up and says, if you don't have love, if all you do are just speaking truth, you can have, understand all mysteries, you can speak eloquently, you can say supernatural prophecies, but if you don't love people, it's, it's, it's a big waste. You're like a clanging symbol. And so we can't only speak truth to people without caring about them at all, without loving. But the other end of the spectrum, which is also unhealthy, is quote-unquote love without any truth which that is actually not really love at all. It's, it's enabling. It's actually loving yourself more than that other person because you don't want any conflict. You don't want to look bad. You, you don't want to hurt that person's feelings. As the pastor at our old church that started Hiawatha, as he used to say, the most loving thing you can do to someone is to tell them that they're a sinner. And of course, there's a lot to it, right? We we uh, tell them about what that means and the hope that they have in Jesus. But if you truly love someone, you don't just uh, leave them the way, that you, the way that they are. You speak truth into their life because you want them to flourish. You want them to heal. You want them to receive forgiveness. And so what Paul's doing here, he confronts the church. He calls out their sin. He calls, calls out their false doctrine. He even calls out people by name of their sin. And for the Corinthian church, it's not fun. It stings. It hurts. It's a burn. It's not fun to hear. And many of the times, like, remember, this is Paul's fourth letter, at least, to them, and he's visited them. Many times, they reject Paul's message. They say, oh, you're just not smart enough, or you're just a blue-collar worker, or you're not really an apostle, or these guys that we're following right now, they are way better than you. 
So many times they rejected Paul's message. They ignored him. They slandered him over and over again. And they ignored the harsh truths that Paul was telling them. But because he loved them, because he wasn't just trying to win an argument, because he cared about these men and women and youth and children, he didn't give up. He kept speaking the truth. He kept talking to them over and over again because he loved them. He saw them on a road running, uh, sprinting away from Jesus and his gospel towards death and hell, and he wanted to stop them. He stepped in with these harsh words that were full of love. And Paul, in this letter here, he's telling them all about what's going on behind the scenes. He reminds the church that the reason he's saying these hard things, the reason that he's confronting them is because he loves them. Because he loves them. He wrote, he says, uh, not to cause you pain. The reason I said these hard things were not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. So despite the sting, despite the frustration, despite the hurt feeling, Paul reminds them, guys, I know this hurts, but it's for your benefit. It's because I love you that I'm writing these things. And he even shares with them his own heart in writing this letter. He says, it gave me no pleasure. I didn't want to win this argument. I didn't want to make you look stupid. I didn't want to call you out. But he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction an anguish of heart and with many tears. He's saying, I know you feel like I'm just trashing on you and hurting you over and over again, but this broke my heart to write this to you. I'm crying. I have anguish of heart as I have to say these hard things. So Paul is a great example for us, both as Christians and as leaders, on how to speak the truth in love. But Paul, like we said, he's not only an example for us to follow, even though he is, but he's also a Christ figure. He's a picture of what Jesus has ultimately and spiritually and eternally done for all of us. Jesus, who himself is truth and love incarnate. Jesus, in his ministry, he said, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you want to know what truth is, I am the truth. I am truth. And then in 1 John, we read about how God is love as well. So Jesus is not just truth. He's also love incarnate in human flesh. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. Christ sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So now, because God himself has spoken grace and truth, truth in love to us through his son, who is the divine essence of both love and truth, we too can now naturally do this to others. Not because God has spoken truth and love to us by showing us our sin, showing, uh, showing us our brokenness and our need for a Savior, and rescuing us from that sin, taking the punishment onto himself. Now we can actually do that towards others. You see, the gospel 
gives us both the power and the motivation to speak the truth in love towards others. Apart from the gospel, trying to speak the truth in love, we don't have much of a motivation to do it, nor do we have the power to truly do it. But the gospel gives that to us. The gospel gives us power because like we saw in verse 9 and in the first John passage, we now live not by ourselves, not by our own strength, but through the power of Christ. To do the hard work, the impossible work of speaking the truth uh, bravely, courageously, but also doing so not in a spirit of, of judgment or of uh, contempt, but rather of love. Apart from the gospel, we naturally are tempted to just speak the truth without any compassion or any love or empathy, or we're tempted to tell the truth, what people need to hear, and who cares how they respond to it. But now in the gospel, we personally have seen and experienced truth and love. This is our story. This is our reality. And it naturally then can flow out of us. So now, by the power of the Spirit, we, can, we can't help but now demonstrate the gospel by speaking the truth in love towards others. That's the first thing we see Paul do both as an example for us and as a picture of Christ. The second thing we see him do in our passage is he, he admonishes the church. He tells the church, we need to forgive. You need to forgive someone who has hurt you, who has betrayed you, who has done evil against you. And in Paul doing this, in Paul telling the church, forgive the sinner, we see Paul being an example for us. Again, an example of church leadership and just being a Christian. And also, we see Paul as a picture of Jesus, the ultimate forgiver of sinners. Let's first start with Paul as an example. We saw in our passage here today, Paul goes on and on about uh, encouraging the Corinthian church to forgive this particular person. And we're not fully sure who, who it is, but most of the commentators I read think it's uh, the, the person that kind of usurped Paul's authority. When Paul left, kind of stood up, uh, got people on his side, was, was very proudful and arrogant, hurt the church, slandered against Paul, said Paul wasn't worthy of following. And so that's the, the bad leader that the church kicked out. So here Paul is saying, uh, this guy's repented, this guy's turned from his sin, he knows the folly of his ways, and now so, so that he doesn't get overcome with feelings of sorrow because of, of how much sin his, or how much uh, pain his sin caused you, church, Paul's saying, forgive this guy. His repentance is real. Let him back in. So let me read again verses 7 through 10. So you, Corinthian church, uh, should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, the sinner, or that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So, of course, Christians are called to forgive everyone, not just other Christians. But in the context of our passage today, we're seeing an example of Christians being called to forgive others within their church. Being called to forgive brothers and sisters in Christ who have sinned against us who have hurt us, who have abandoned us, betrayed us, spoke evil against us. So the first thing that we have to do when we talk about forgiveness, because even in just me saying we need to forgive sinners, many of us, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, um, 
go-to exceptions. Or just think about what does he mean when he says forgiveness. So let's quickly talk about when the Bible talks about forgiveness, when we talk about Christian forgiveness, what are we saying, what are we not? So first, what are we not saying? Uh, First of all, Christian forgiveness is not saying that sin is okay or that it wasn't that big of a deal. Actually, in fact, by forgiving someone, you're saying I, forgiveness was needed, saying your sin did hurt me. It was a big enough deal that, that uh, uh, a forgiveness was needed. And so forgiveness is not saying what you did was not a big deal. Secondly, uh, nor does forgiveness mean that we completely forget. And so often we hear the phrase, maybe especially with kids, we say, oh, just forgive and forget. So it might be a common phrase, but that might not always be what happens. You might be keenly aware of a person's sin against you, even while still forgiving them. You may still feel the hurt even long after you have forgiven them, feel the consequences or the hurt or the pain of that sin. You may still remember their sin, or you might uh, even put things in place in your life in order to keep that person from sinning against you again. So that's kind of the extreme, but that is you can still forgive a person and all those things can happen. You don't need to completely forget. Also, forgiveness is not ceasing to desire justice. So you might forgive someone who's sinned grievously against you, yet you still call the cops, or yet you still ask the leaders of a church to exercise church discipline or to step in, or you still allow the law to take over and that person has to pay you a fine or make restitution or something like that. You definitely can choose to to release that, and that demonstrates the gospel, of course, but there might be seasons or certain circumstances where uh, you can still long for justice even while still uh, forgiving someone. And then finally, forgiveness does not necessarily always mean reconciliation. It sure might, and it often does, and even in our passage here, too, it seems like Paul is saying, bring in that false teacher, that bad leader, that guy that served, that uh, created huge division in our church. We're not going to let him be a leader again. We're not going to let him have influence and authority over you again. But I want you to reconcile. There's only one church here in Corinth, and he's still a believer, and he needs the church. And so it seems like Paul is fighting for reconciliation, but that doesn't mean that it will always uh, fully happen. If a husband cheats on his wife, and they do forgive each other, he still might need to find a new church because it's too hurtful for her to be around him. Or if there's an abusive situation, or again, these are all extremes, but we just want to be really careful when we say Christians are called to forgive, that we're really careful with what we say. So what what is Christian forgiveness? Let's spend more time focusing on what it is. First of all, it's Christian. It, It resembles Christ. It looks like Jesus. And so, Let's start to define uh, forgiveness, Christian forgiveness, by saying it uh, does not continue to hold someone's sin against them, right? We don't look at that person and say, well, you're a liar, you're a slanderer, you're a thief, you're a luster, you're a greedy person. But Christian forgiveness does not hold someone's sin against them, nor does it uh, mean that they, or Christian, Christian forgiveness means that you give up wanting revenge, you give up wanting that person uh, pain. You stop wishing that they would experiencing pain because you release them, because you trust that God is a just God and that he will bring uh, healing and that if you don't see, see justice in this life, 
that you will see there will be ultimate justice eventually because God is a just God. Also, or finally, Christian forgiveness is uh, desiring them, the person that sinned against you, to receive forgiveness from God, restoration, reconciliation with him, and healing. Forgiveness is releasing them of their sin and, and, and wanting what's best for them, wanting healing and, and Christ-likeness in their life. But like I said, this is Christian forgiveness, and we cannot understand forgiveness until we look to Christ. Christian forgiveness is uniquely and squarely based on being first forgiven by God through Christ. Paul, in writing another letter to another church, he says to them, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The way that you're able to forgive, the reason you should forgive is because Christ or God in Christ first forgave you. Which leads us to seeing what Paul's doing, not just as a great example, not just as a great pastor or church planter or leader, but seeing Paul as a picture, a Christ figure. But before we get there, before we begin to talk about Jesus being the ultimate forgiver of sin, some of you, you know, I don't know where everyone is here in this room, some of you might be thinking, whether you're a Christian or not, you might be thinking, but why, why do we need forgiveness? Kind of what's, what's, what's going on here? I'm not that bad of a person. I've maybe f- sinned against some of my friends or family, but I've never sinned against God. I've never shook my fist at God or Maybe I have sinned against him a little bit, but I'm like one of the best people I know. Why do I need forgiveness? And the reason we need forgiveness, all humanity needs forgiveness, is because in our natural state, we are sinful. We are rebellious against our creator and God. Our natural state is not neutrality. We're not just neutral towards God, but our natural state is actually sinful. It's actually against God. In our heart of hearts, we fight against him. And we fight against his rule and his love in our lives. We desire independence from him. We desire self-worship. That's our natural state. And even though we do sin against each other, which is true, and most of us will admit that we have hurt each other or sinned against other people to some extent, all of our sin is actually ultimately sin against God. So even if you think, hey, I've never said God's name in vain. I've never shook my fist at him. I've never, you know, done a hate crime against Christians. Why are you saying my sin is against God? The truth is that all of our sin, even more than just against other humans, horizontal, our sin is vertical. It's against God. If you know anything about uh, King David, one of Israel's biggest kings uh, killed Goliath. King David, when he was king, went through horrible sin that's brutally described in the Bible. King David was consumed by lust and greed, and he used his power to force, uh, force himself onto his friend's wife and got her to sleep with him. And then when he gets her pregnant, and then he can't get his friend to be uh, tricked into thinking that the pregnancy was his friend's kid, David then murders his friend to cover up his sin. And it is right after this, right after David has done these horrible, disgusting, evil sins, that he writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51, inspired by the Holy Spirit, David writes these words. So think, 
David did some of the worst sins possible towards two other human beings. And this is what David wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we see here through David's example is that ultimately all of our sin is against our God, against our creator. It is treason against our heavenly king. It is infidelity against our spiritual bridegroom. Sin is the theft of glory from the God Almighty. So maybe we get right now, okay, maybe I can kind of see how my sin is actually not just against others, but it is against God. But the reality is, whether you're a Christian or not, we're always tempted to believe, not always, much of the time we're tempted to believe that our sin really isn't that bad, though. Again, hey, I know the people that surround me. I know my relatives. I know my classmates. I know the politicians and movie stars on the TV. I'm really not that bad of a person. My sin really isn't that bad. Okay, maybe God needs, maybe I need forgiveness from God a little bit, but not that much. But the reality is our sin really is that bad. And Jesus picks up on this in his ministry. Jesus teaches a parable in Matthew 18. He says, there's this guy, a servant to the king, and he owes the king an unpayable amount, amount that was so large he could work for a million lifetimes and never repay it question of, oh, I can work off this debt to the king was unfathomable. unfathomable. I'm adding too many syllables. He, he, he couldn't fathom it. And in this parable, what, what uh, Jesus says is the guy falls down before the king and he says, forgive me. Forgive me. And the king is merciful. And he says, okay, I just wiped your slate clean. That debt that you owed that you could never pay in a million lifetimes because you're repentant, and, and asking for forgiveness, I'll forgive you. It's clean. There's more to that parable that we might get to in a second. But the point here is that our debt to God, or our debt against him because of all of our sin, is unfathomable. We, can, we cannot do enough good deeds to, to right the scales of good versus bad. But some of you still might be wondering, and these are great questions to ask, Many of our minds are going here. But why is my debt against God so great? Why is my sin against God such a big deal? Why does Jesus describe it as unpayable, as an infinite debt? What's going on there? And the reason is because the level of the offense is based on who the sin is against. The level of the offense is based on who the sin is against. Sinning against other humans is wrong and does come with consequences and hurt. Yet sinning against God, who is infinitely greater than us, comes with an infinitely greater consequence and hurt. That's kind of hard to understand. It took me a while to really figure this out, but let me give you a real life example that will help you with this. Okay, This was the first car that I ever drove. 1986, red, mostly rusty Ford Fiesta. Purchased for $300. You're probably thinking, at $300, I got a bad deal. And you're, you're probably right. 
So a car, a junker that's hardly worth anything. Now in comparison, in contrast to this, this is the most expensive car in the world. The most expensive new car that's ever been purchased. The Bugatti La Voiture Noire. So expensive I can't even pronounce its name. This car costs $19 million. $19 million. Okay? So now let's say you, let's, I own both these cars in my analogy here. You uh, get in a fender bender. You crash into my car. Even though the offense is the same, let's say it's two different days, you hit both my cars. Even though the offense is the same, it's a fender bender. Because of the value of what you're offending, because of the value of what you're destroying, what you're sinning against, because the value is different, the consequences are quite different. So you get a fender bender with the Fiesta. I might even thank you for forcing me to get a new car. Or maybe I get some insurance money, right? But if you get a fender bender with the Bugatti, you have an unpayable debt. You owe me, in this analogy, a few million dollars. And this is just scratching the surface on, you know, our, our, our true reality here. But the point is, it's the same with God. In order to be forgiven... Think about with a friend. In order to be forgiven by a friend whom you sinned against, you need to apologize, repent, maybe show them, demonstrate that you're sorry or that it won't happen again. Yet, sinning against our creator and God, who is infinitely greater than a human, who is more glorious and holy and valuable than his creation, the consequences of sinning against creator God are infinitely greater. That's why in Jesus' parable, the unforgiving servant has a, a debt that he could never hope to repay. Because we're not just doing a fender bender against a junker, a piece of junk that's thrusting out. When we sin, we're sinning against something of infinite worth. Thus, the consequences are different. But both in Jesus' parable, good news here, and also in real life, it is through trust in Jesus, his perfect life, his death in our place, his victorious resurrection and glorious ascension, that now forgiveness is offered to you, to us, to me. We are the character in that story about the parable, with no hope, with an infinite debt, but forgiveness is offered if we would just repent of our sin and believe. So Christian forgiveness, back to forgiveness. Paul is not just saying, here's a new law for, for you, church in Corinth. Go try to do it. Paul is saying, this is what Christian forgiveness is. It looks just like the cross. It looks just like what Jesus first did for us. It looks like the forgiveness we've seen in Christ. Jesus in uh, Luke 7, I believe it is, he teaches the same thing. He says, for those who are forgiven of a little, they just love a little. But to those who have been forgiven a ton, love a ton, forgive a ton. The more you understand how sinful and broken and, and, and depraved you are in your heart, the more that you will see how beautiful and great and powerful and wonderful your salvation and forgiveness really are. And then naturally out of that, love in a scandalous type way. Forgive in a scandalous, unjust even type way towards others. And again, just like we said, speaking the truth in love is both empowered and we receive the motivation for doing that because of the gospel. The same thing with forgiving. Forgiving others 
isn't a new law given to us, right? I, I, ha- I have two kids in my life. I can, if one sins against the other, I can say, uh, tell your sibling you're sorry. I can make them do that. But do I change their hearts just by giving them a law, by giving them the rule? No, they might even say the words I want them to say. But a law cannot change the hearts of us or, or, or anyone. But rather, like we saw with speaking the truth and the love, it is the gospel that gives us the power and the motivation to forgive others. There's a direct connection between, between seeing the greatness of our sin and then the greatness of God's forgiveness that covers that great amount of sin. And it is that understanding that creates a scandalous desire for us to offer forgiveness to others, including others that don't deserve it, including others that aren't asking for it. So the gospel gives us the power to forgive others because we are now new creations. We are now new people in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within us and gives us the power to forgive others. And the gospel also gives us the motivation to want to forgive because we've been forgiven so much. How can we not forget some, forgive something that is so much smaller? And we've not just been forgiven but also forgiven of an impossible and insurmountable debt. And when we know that, when we believe that, when we receive that, how can we not naturally then want to forgive others who have sinned just this much against us? Being told, you must forgive or else, doesn't give people the power or the motivation to forgive. Only the gospel can do that. Forgiving others as God has forgiven us means we resolve to revoke revenge. Forgiving others as God has first forgiven us means we determine to do good towards our enemies and our church family rather than evil. Uh, Author and theologian Jen Wilkin writes, she says, in view of God's mercy, when I think about God's mercy, we as Christians sacrifice our bitterness and grudge-bearing for the sake of extending forgiveness. We also sacrifice our legitimate hurts, the pain of unfair rejection or the sorrow of a wound unjustly received. We entrust them to God, remembering that Christ endured the same from us and for us and to a much greater degree. The gospel gives us power and motivation to forgive other Christians. And finally, the last thing that we see in our passage, the last verse today in our passage, Paul connects this truth that Christians are called to forgive others and that they're called to speak the truth and love towards others. He takes this, these truths and he says those are directly linked with spiritual warfare. He reminds the church that forgiveness is not just a good thing to do, it's not just natural for the Christian, but it also battles Satan. And speaking hard truths to each other because of our love for each other within the context of the church fights against the plans of our enemy who wants to destroy us and our spiritual family. The last verse in our passage today ended with, so he says, speak the truth in love, forgive each other within the church, in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So on top of Paul's personal plea, he says, I love you guys. Stop living in sin. Speak the truth in love. Forgive each other. Paul does that. Then Paul also uses his, his social capital, his authority as their former pastor. 
He does all this to persuade the church to do these things. He ends this section by saying, and don't be foolish. Don't think that when you don't forgive someone else that that's just between you and them. Don't think that when you just speak truth and it's hurtful and you don't love them or when you don't ever speak the truth because you're afraid to do it. Don't think that those things only just hurt one person. But rather, you need to see that we are in a spiritual battle. That we are fighting against not flesh and blood. Our enemies as a church, as Christians, are not the people around us that are hurting us, that are letting us down, that are offending us, that are sinning against us. But we're reminded that our battle is against not flesh and blood, but against Satan and his servants. And he reminds the church with this last verse that Satan is using their sin to destroy them. And he's pleading with them. He, he's saying, guys, we know his tactics. We know his designs. We're not, we're not, uh, we don't not understand how he's trying to destroy us. So this isn't the main reason we forgive others and speak the truth in love, but it is kind of a final stamp that he reminds them with. Church, we've been plagued with division and disunity and factions for so long. That's a plan of our enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. So let's remember that too as we fight against our enemy. Mark uh, Seifred, who is a commentator on this passage, writes, while the, Corinthian, while the Corinthians might have regarded the situation as a mere, mere human affair to be decided by their own judgment, Paul warns them that they stand in jeopardy of being mere pawns of Satan, subject to his tricks. That's a great reminder for us here today, especially if Hiawatha Church is your home, especially if you are a Christian. Let us not be mere pawns of our enemy. We know how he tries to steal, kill, and destroy, how he tries to disunify us through things like unforgiveness and lies and disunity, divisions, and fear. So let us know the tactics of our enemy. Let's fight against those with the gospel, the gospel that gives us motivation and power. So as we leave here today, kind of three things. First, receive Jesus. If you're not a Christian here today, hopefully today you heard and saw just how much Jesus loves you, how, how broken and hopeless we all are, how you are in your sin apart from Jesus, but yet how he did everything possible. He went to hell and back. He died so that you could live. He offers you forgiveness. Or if you're already a Christian, receive that again for the millionth time today. Receive Jesus who is in himself the embodiment of truth and love. And as we receive that, out of that will naturally come a desire for us to speak the truth in love to others. So Hiawatha Church, because of the gospel, let us be a church that speaks the truth in love. Secondly, forgive others. Not as a law, not as a rule, not as a biblical author or your pastor telling you to do it, but forgive others because you have first been forgiven. When that person in your community group drives you nuts, when that person in your church sins against you, when that friend who is a believer hurts you again for the hundredth time, the way that we forgive them is not to say, ah, oh, good Christians forgive. What's my law? What am I supposed to do? What did Spencer tell me? What did the Apostle Paul write? The way we forgive others, the way our heart is moved, the way we receive power to do the impossible, forgive someone, is by remembering that it's first happened 
to us by believing and receiving and cherishing and meditating and singing on the gospel, this good news that we have been forgiven through Jesus. And then finally, whether you're a part of this church or another church, through these two things, through speaking the truth in love and through forgiving others, fight Satan and battle against our enemy who wants to destroy us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great, great love for us that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Even though we didn't want to hear the truth, even though we were rejecting your love, even though we were undeserving of forgiveness, you overcame all those obstacles. And you uh, moved towards us with this uh, scandalous love, the scandalous forgiveness um, that we just don't deserve and that we have a hard time understanding. So let that truth, that reality about who we are, about who we are in you, about who you are, let that change our lives. God, help us to be uh, protected by the enemy and to know his schemes, to battle that with the gospel. And, and Father, make us a church that, that loves deeply and sacrificially and scandalously, that speaks the truth with courage because of our great love for you and for others, and that forgives, that forgives unbelievably quickly for large and small things. And in doing so, make us look like you. Make the, the watching world see you in your gospel and be drawn towards that. May you receive glory in this and we receive joy. We pray this in your powerful saving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with one more song, so let's stand together and respond.